electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, streamflation rocks on as Disney jacks up prices yet again. The table's turned. Aftershock spread across the gaming industry following ESPN's landmark betting deal. Miles apart, negotiation between the UAW and the automakers taking a rather ugly turn. Oil prices marching higher is 100 bucks a barrel and 5 or even $6 gas just around the corner. Plus, a lot of money... Not a lot of workers. Will a talent shortage imperil America's semiconductor boom? And what happens when a self-driving taxi goes all haywire? Our car drove straight towards the median and just stopped, picking up almost two full lanes. Yeah, that's not good. We're going to have the full wild report that you have to see and will see. All that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, we're going to get to all that. But first up tonight on Last Call, a very serious story and some big breaking news around China. President Biden cracking down on American investments in Chinese companies, especially as they pertain to national security. CNBC's senior Washington correspondent Eamon Jabbers joins us now with more on what we know at this hour. Eamon. Hey there, Brian. Well, the Biden administration announced a much more narrow than expected set of proposed rules around investment in China today. In an executive order, the president directed Treasury to propose new rules regulating U.S. investment in three technology sectors in China, quantum computing, semiconductors and artificial intelligence. Some investments in those sectors will be prohibited now and others will just be subjected to mandatory disclosure. There's not going to be any proposed new regulations outside those high tech sectors though, and some on Wall Street feared restrictions could be coming on a much broader array of investment categories. Still, former Department of Justice national security official John Carlin tells me the move is a signal to American investors. I think it's, it's another sign. If I were a venture capital or PE firm today, I'd be taking a look at my risk exposure and trying to think not just one year ahead, but two, three years ahead. So it's not an immediate impact on doing business. But it's another sign of the continuing choppy waters between the U.S. and China. A senior administration official said today they're considering exemptions for investments in publicly traded companies in China, which even more narrowly tailors today's move to just the venture capital and private equity industries. The reason for that, they said, is that the White House recognizes the Chinese already have access to lots of money. What they don't have is know-how, and it's the intangible benefits that come along with private investments that can transfer that know-how, such as introductions to key experts, partnering with the other portfolio companies and that kind of thing. While they're careful to say they can't predict the Chinese reaction to today's move. They also did reveal that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen briefed Chinese counterparts on this move when she was in China in July. So Beijing has had some notice that this is coming. 
These new rules will go through the Treasury Department's regulatory process, their normal process, so they won't take effect for some time now. And Brian, it's worth noting the choreography around all this, which is always intentional when it comes to a White House. We're not seeing President Biden doing a big signing ceremony here today. In fact, he was in New Mexico today giving a speech about the economy, not really focused on this new announcement regarding China. Brian, back over to you. A big story and big news nonetheless. Samen Jabbers at the White House. Samen, thank you very much. You All right, for reaction and analysis, let's bring in the co-founder and CEO of tech venture capital firm Tusk Ventures. That would be Bradley Tusk. Uh, Bradley, good to have you on the program, right? I mean, you, you are a tech investor. Are you looking at, to, to Eamon's point, your investment risk profile as it pertains to China? No, not, not really. I mean, this executive order might be good politics. Maybe it prevents something bad from happening at some point. But it's extremely narrow. Um, we don't have any Chinese investments. The vast majority of venture capital funds in the U.S. don't invest in Chinese startups. The amount of investment from U.S. venture capital funds into Chinese startups has fallen quite a bit this year already, completely independent um, of, of this executive order. And the final part being, look, VC, it, most investments are not that big, right? Your check sizes range from... The, the single digits to usually at most hundreds of millions of dollars. So clearly the Chinese have the money to make up for any funding gap there. So the real question is whether there's a certain amount of know-how mm -hmm. that USVCs can provide to Chinese startups. Um, I'm not quite sure the risk is all that pronounced, but better safe than sorry. But it, yeah, well, okay, to that point, is there a downside to this move? No, I don't think. I mean, the, the, the downside would be arguably you were limiting the potential of American companies to make money and pay taxes and hire people and things like that. But I think we're really talking about it at the margins here. So on one hand, not a lot of risk um, in doing this. On the other hand, I, I just don't, I, it, this is not like we're talking about banning Chinese nationals from working in key labs at universities or having really critical positions in infrastructure. Um, I'm kind of flattered as venture capitalists to think that they think we're important enough that we could actually impact um, Chinese security and, and global security. But in reality, that's probably not. The case. Well, but, you know, but a lot of this, I would imagine, is going to come down to the two letters that we talk about all the time on this network and this show, which is AI, artificial intelligence is Talk to our audience about how big, if at all, of a sea change AI will be. I mean, is it basically like the birth of the Internet or something of that magnitude? And okay. what I mean, can we do to protect American and by the way, not just American intellectual property, but my property. Right. We talk about Zoom, maybe monitoring what we're saying on the platform. This is a, it seems like, Bradley, this is a critical time. Yeah, so overall, absolutely. I mean, I think the China thing may be a little bit of a, a sideshow, but look, AI is among probably the most meaningful inventions and developments in human history, right? And the one of the reasons why I think, like you said, it comes up on, on CNBC so frequently is in many ways, we don't really understand both the potential benefits and harms that it can do because we understand that, hey, we can empower uh, technology to think in ways that we can't, and obviously in much faster ways than we can. Um, but what that all leads to, who knows? It could be really wonderful things like vaccines for cancer or how to make carbon capture work so we can fix climate change. And it could also lead to development of weapons that are vastly more devastating than what we have today. Um, and that's what makes it both well, so exciting and scary. Well, what, what do you think is the most exciting investment angle around AI right now, Bradley? Where are you putting your money? 
So we're putting it into, into digital health by and large. We think that uh, the ability for AI to both make the sector work a lot more efficiently, serve patients a lot better, reduce costs. This country especially has the highest and most expensive health care without really the ROI um, on the back end at all. But then ultimately um, into disease prevention and biotech. And that's where I think really the greatest opportunity is. And that's where we've been focused um, so far. But, but also to your point earlier about what do we do to protect ourselves? Yep. Look, the executive order today is, is fine. What we really need are meaningful regulations in this country around how AI is Use what privacy uh, restrictions we're going to have. How do you protect people's data yeah. um, when we shift? And there's going to be well, long term probably a lot of job creation from AI, but short term some real disruption. What are we going to do about that? You know, when yeah. Andrew Yang talked about universal basic income in the presidential campaign a couple of years ago, that was his point, which is this thing has amazing potential. But in any seismic shift, just like we went from the horse and the buggy to the car, a, a lot of things change and there's people who kind of suffer in the short term and we need policies yeah. and plans to Bradley Tusk, Tusk Ventures, real pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, meantime, stocks and your money turned down again today. Been a rough few days, actually. The major average is lower than NASDAQ, the worst. Finally, keep an eye on Apple. Apple is now down 9% in about six trading days. Just something to watch there with Apple. Biggest and most important stock in the world. The biggest winner of the day was Axon. That's the company formerly known as Taser. It rose 14%. Some big earnings news there. And for the biggest loser was NVIDIA, by the way. Down about 5% futures. Again, very thinly traded. Take them with a grain of sea salt. Either way, futures right now. There you go. They're up just a touch. Up next, you know what else is up? The price of streaming. Disney revealing new price hikes on its platforms. Are you going to take it? Shark Tank's Robert Herjavec is here with reaction to that and more. Plus, want to know how negotiations are going between the UAW and the automakers? Well, that is the UAW head throwing a proposal in the garbage. We'll hit that next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style, of course. And let's hit Disney. Their earnings are out tonight and prices are going up once again. All this as Disney takes huge steps into sports betting. As always, full team coverage. We've got Contessa Brewer, the latest on the new ESPN Bet Sportsbook. And Julia has the quarterly results and some of these price hikes for us. Julia, begin with you. What are some of the key highlights? 
Well, Brian, Disney delivered an earnings beat on cost cutting that is coming in ahead of schedule and lower than expected losses in the streaming division. While Disney's parks business, particularly overseas, continues to be a growth driver. CEO Bob Iger, though, on the call today, laying out a plan to transform the direct-to-consumer streaming business. He announced price hikes for ad-free Disney Plus going to $14 from $11 and for ad-free Hulu going up to $18 from $15 while keeping ad-supported Hulu and Disney Plus at the same cost. This is the company hopes to push consumers to the dual revenue stream ad-supported option. Iger noting that ad-supported Disney Plus has 3.3 million subscribers so far. The advertising marketplace for streaming is picking up. It's more healthy than the advertising marketplace for linear television. We believe in the future of advertising on our streaming platforms, both Disney Plus and Hulu. And we're obviously trying with our pricing strategy to migrate more subs to the advertiser-supported tier. Iger also announcing another way they aim to make money, cracking down on password sharing, saying they will roll out tactics to drive monetization around this sometime next year. We already have the technical capability to monitor much of this. And I'm not going to give you a a specific number except to say that it's significant. What we don't know, of course, is as we get to work on this, how much of the password sharing, as we basically eliminate it, will convert to growth in subs. Obviously, we believe there will be some, but we're not speculating. Clearly taking a page from Netflix here, Iger praising Netflix's margins, noting that they've carefully balanced their investment in programming with their pricing strategy. Iger also reiterated his interest in taking ESPN direct to consumer, saying that the strategic partnerships they're looking at for ESPN will be valuable for distribution and marketing support. Brian. All right. Julia Borston on Disney earnings. Thank you very much. Now to the equally fascinating story of ESPN getting into gaming and how they did it. Contessa Brewer is here with that. And this is a, saw the interview, by the way, on Mad Money. Really appreciate it. What's going on here with this deal, Contessa? Well, first of all, Penn Entertainment, Brian, is really setting some lofty goals. Pay a billion and a half to ESPN over 10 years and you get $150 million in marketing every year. The return, the casino company predicts, could earn half a billion to a billion dollars if they hit targets for gaining market share. And some gambling insiders told me they are flat out gleeful. They call this a watershed moment for sports betting. And others said they think it's flat crazy. One called it a Hail Mary. Another said, yeah, it's like a gambler chasing bad money with good. But CEO Jay Snowden told me tonight on Mad Money, he believes in the strategy. He just needed a different partner. There is a recipe there. And that recipe is you've got to have a sports brand that reaches the masses. You have to have access to a fantasy database, fantasy players that convert very well to real money sports betting. And you have to have fantastic technology and products. That media marketing partner, that strategy has not worked for everybody. Brian FanDuel had partnered with Fox, but it just flopped. And the CEO, FanDuel Flutter's parent company CEO told me in an exclusive interview today, he's watching a lot of these competitors scrambling around to try and take on the dominant players. But the deal already is sending shockwaves through the industry. DraftKings shares closed lower by nearly 11 percent and a lot of speculation here that they will have to ramp up again. And so will other competitors to fend off an upstart ESPN bet. Another way this could change gambling. Several sources speculated to me that ESPN and Disney are so 
normal, they're so accepted, they're so American, that maybe that is also the future for sports betting. No longer a vice, Brian. Yeah, like Goofy laying two and a half on the Celtics. It's going to be great. Contessa Brewer, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, joining us now, of course, is Sidera's CEO, but more well-known is Shark Tank's breakout star, Robert Herzevec. Robert, great to have you on. I have seen you on TV. You know something about television. These streaming costs, and by the way, Peacock, our, our also price just went up. Got to be perfectly transparent about that. Um, where does this end? for? T- is there a good end for TV? Yeah, I'm, I getting, mean, I'm getting nervous. Well, first of all, in full transparency, since we're being transparent, okay. I do work for Disney. Shark Tank is on ABC. Bob yep. Iger is indirectly my boss somewhere up the chain. Uh, I'm very bullish on Disney. I'm very bullish. I think there's way too many streaming channels today, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to have a big shakeout. The people that are going to survive are the ones that have the brand that can have price elasticity. And I'll tell you how this works for me. I'm a very simple investor. Mm-hmm. If I took Disney off my streaming service, my five-year-old twins would go crazy. Yep. So they can raise the price by 20%, 30%. They can raise it next year. I will pay, and most consumers will pay. That's not true of all the streaming apps. Disney only has one problem. It's a cost problem, and Bob Iger's doing a great job. They're way ahead of that. And look at the earnings from the parks today. People are coming back. They want entertainment. They want physical yeah. entertainment. I'm very, very bullish on Disney. I, I, the movies haven't done well. Well, the movies haven't done well. I do like the deal on sports betting. I think. Why? Is there, to Contessa's final point, listen, I, I was putting my public bets on Twitter. I think I had a 67% winning percentage against the spread <laughs> on the NFL last year, by the way. That said, I get it, but is there an element of Disney and gambling that just doesn't fit? Well, or? I think there's an element of ESPN and gambling, and I think gambling is going to come to every small town in America. I look at places like the UK. I look at Australia. People love to gamble, Brian, and ESPN is a, is a great brand for that. The other thing I like about ESPN that they haven't explored, they've read about, is more direct-to-consumer. So you look at Formula One as an example, where I can buy a Formula One feed. I, I pay for it. I pay for it. You do. You, I, knew, I knew I liked you. I we love one on the app. I'm the guy that watches every lap from every driver's perspective. I used to race cars. I love cars. I, still do. I love Formula One. We, we got a yeah, lot of Yeah, we had that in common. So I think ESPN has a lot of movement there. I think on a lot of Do they need a basis. partner, though? There's been some speculation. I think Bill Cohen and Puck, if you read that, by the way, Puck, they do a fantastic job. Um, where maybe like an, a Comcast, our parent company, and, and a Disney could almost partner up on an ESPN, because it is so big and sports is so expensive, right? Even yeah. if I want to watch the Argonauts win the Grey Cup again, I might have to pay up for those rights, Robert. <laughs> I, I, I think Bob Iger needs to figure out what to do with ESPN, but I think it's a great brand. And I think as this world collides, look at how many TV shows there are. Look how much streaming there is. The, the strong brands will continue to yeah. drive. People have overspent on content and people have overspent on production. And there's only a few companies that can continue to grow without overspending. Would you invest, you're a Shark Tank guy, would you invest in a company that lost money on every transaction with no clear visibility of profitability? Because that's actually streaming right now. I mean, there's no clear indication anyone's going to ever make money. I I don't know if I agree with you. That's true for everyone. I don't think that's true for everyone. I would definitely invest in Disney. There are other streaming networks that have a big hit 
Western-themed big hit. Mm. I won't mention any networks. Sure. I'm not sure those are going to survive on a long-term basis because I think you're going to see a lot of price competition, and I think those are going to become commoditized. Yeah. So you can only chase a hit for so long. Disney is a brand. Rhymes with Haramount. Rhymes with Haramount, I think. What's Haramount? I don't know. But, but, you know, listen, you got, you got people paying a lot of money. I'll give an example. Okay, Hulu, of which we have a stake. Again, right. in Com- every time i got to have a disclosure, right? They got the show The Bear, which is fantastic, right? It's kind of a dark comedy about a guy who's, you know, he's trying to open up this high-end restaurant in Chicago. <laughs> but I don't know what else is on Hulu. And when, the, when I finish The Bear, like, what's well, good, am I going into hibernation? Well, I love Hulu because I watch ABC on Hulu. Uh, yeah, and I watch those things. What's on ABC? Shark Tank? All kinds of things. Shark All kinds Tank. Of great shows. What you're missing about Hulu, though, is people that cut the cord can watch ABC and network programming on Hulu which you can't do on some of the other ones. No, the Hulu Live product, and, and again, with others, yeah. 100%, 100%. I was just making the point about, you know, cable, and I'm saying this as an employee of a cable company, so people can come at me if you want. Cable doesn't look that bad of a deal at this point. Absolutely. Everyone's like, it's too damn expensive. When we went now, to... add up all your streaming at home, folks. We are add paying up everything. more for streaming today than we ever did for cable. And, and just wait till all these sports let, rights are renegotiated. Let me ask you this. Uh-oh. How many users do you think buy a streaming service for one show and then actually cancel it? You do? Uh, I just, okay, maybe I'm I just referenced one. I'm I just lazy. I literally just referenced one. I think that's a big part of it. I think people I'll give you another up. example. I okay. subscribe, and I shouldn't even say this, but we're being so transparent and honest with each other. I subscribed to Epics because The Godfather of Harlem with Forrest Whitaker was spectacular. That was a great show. Yeah. And then Epics Did went, you cancel? Of course I did. Yeah. Turns out a lot of people do that. And yeah, I think churn. It's called churn. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to be honest. I shouldn't as a member of the media, but geez. But look at the churn numbers for Disney. Not that high. And that's the I mean, key. they lost a little bit because of the Indian, um, the cricket. They lost part of the cricket yeah. streaming or something there, so they lost some users. And I, I'm not going to lie to you also. We're being such, so transparent. I can't stand Baby Yoda. Okay? We're going to be right back. We're going to be right back. Talking UAW. Stick around, please. We'll be right back right after this. I love Baby Yoda. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, welcome back. This may be the most important economic story in America not getting enough attention. A potential strike by the United Auto Workers. The nearly 150,000-member group is in an intense period of negotiation with the big three, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which used to be known as Fiat, Dodge, and Chrysler. Their current deal expires at midnight on September 14th, and while that is more than a month away, the two groups may also still be a long way apart. Now, the UAW wants up to a 46% pay jump over the contract, a shorter work week, and a return of traditional pensions. Now, union head Sean Fain got a counterproposal from Stellantis, which he said was so offensive that he dumped it in the trash. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do with, with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place, because that's where it belongs, the trash, because that's what it is. That was last night. 
it's clear the UAW and the United Automakers, or automakers rather, have a lot of work to do in just over one month. Now, for its part, the UAW does have a reason to be optimistic about a new contract. We've seen other major union deals this year. The UPS, Teamsters, making a deal with nice wage gains for workers, including 46% pay hikes for part-timers. United Airlines finalizing four years of bargaining with a new union deal, or pilots could get a 40% pay increase. American Airlines also in talks for a similar boost. Remember in June, dock workers at West Coast Ports, they reached the new six-year deal, which will give them an average pay hike of 5.7% every year, far more than you're probably getting. And of course, TV and movie writers and actors also on strike, they'll likely end up with a rich new deal as well. So right now, there are really two big questions outstanding. Number one, given it has $825 million in a special fund, will the UAW actually go on a full bore strike? No car production, nada. And two, when they reach a deal, and let's be honest, they ultimately will, and we want them to make as much as they deserve, how much could this raise give the raise of cost cars, of costs and trucks going up, which, as you know, are already soaring? Let's bring in Douglas Holtz Eakin. He is American Action Forum president and former CBO director and Merrick Masters, professor of the business of business rather at Detroit's Wayne State and a well-known labor expert. I got through that as quick as I could. Sorry to stumble, Merrick. I want to go to you. I've been reading some of the stuff you've been quoted in in the Detroit Free Press, doing great work, by the way. Uh, how far apart are these two sides? Nominally, I think they're very far apart. And this part of a bargaining strategy the UAW is using to generate a lot of solidarity among its rank and file to get as good a deal as possible. But I think when they sit down to the at the table, get serious about things, they'll be a lot closer than this appears. Yeah. And, you know, Douglas, I want we want everyone labor. These people are working hard. The job's a lot harder than what I'm doing sitting here. We want them to make as much money as they possibly can. Flying planes, UPS, dock workers. However, when they get this new deal, are you worried about the inflationary effects, not just of this, but of shipping, of trucking, of logistics? Yeah, I mean, this is a big concern, and it's uh, it's across the economy. And indeed, it's something the Biden administration has to be concerned about. Their loyalty to unions makes a lot of the other things they want much more expensive. They just did a Davis-Bacon uh, rule that raises the cost of every wind and solar farm they want to build, cuts into the spending they can do on infrastructure projects. It's going to make the Chips and Semiconductor Act uh, you know, a lot less generous. So th- that's a, an economy-wide issue. We're fight- fighting the inflation and everything that goes on in this front makes the cost base bigger and the price hikes higher. Well, you were kind of on the other side, Douglas, at one point. Back to you. If you were still in that current role, what would you be advising the president to do? Because to your point, you know, he's he's pro-union. He's sort of blue-collar Joe, right? But at the same time, he's probably terrified about inflation. I, I think they really have to not try to be all things to all people. And quite frankly... The unions are prepared to cut them loose. Uh, if you look at uh, union membership, it continues to go down under the most pro-union president ever. Uh, if you look at real wages, they're down uh, over the, the life of this administration. So they're on their own. And some of these unions have cut good deals and have gotten good uh, contracts. That's what the UAW is looking to do. I- I'd say the unions are on their own. And if I was in the administration, I'd say we have to take care of our business as well. America, is there, I'm not going to ask you to lay odds, but I'm going to ask you to lay odds. I mean, listen, we've seen smaller things that have occurred. Is there a chance of a general strike? And I don't just mean with the UAW. I mean with parts companies, sort of everybody in simpatico toward Detroit. You know, I use Detroit for Stellantis, Ford and Chrysler comes to a halt. Well, I think a general strike that would involve all the parts suppliers is 
very remote. I think it's possible that you could have a strike with more than one of the Detroit three. I think the UAW has kept its options open and it, it is determined that it's got new leadership as a result of the scandal. And a lot of its members don't trust the companies and they don't trust the UAW. So the leadership has to be very careful um, in reflecting what the rank and file want. That puts it in a very difficult position. The Biden administration is already engaged in this negotiation by appointing a, a go-to person. It remains to be seen what they'll ultimately do. But I think that a solution to the problems mm -hmm. and the issues that the UEW has raised will require more than just a collective bargaining agreement. They'll have to get public policy aid. Yeah. And we just talked about streaming. They're dealing with EVs, which use a lot fewer parts. Totally different thing. Merrick Masters, Douglas Holtzikin, gentlemen, both. Thank you. Robert Herzebeck is still here. Robert, obviously, you're known, you know, it's kind of a master negotiator. So you also, by the way, were a member of a union. Part of, you were a union steward, as I understand it. So I was. Sort of tasked to this without taking a side. Is there any advice you would give both sides as to how to come together on this? Yeah. Funny story. He reminded me when, you know, I escaped from a communist country with mom and dad. Yep. Melodramatic story. I was eight years old. I'm walking down the street. We see a Cadillac. And I say to my dad, What's that? And he says to me, only capitalists drive Cadillac. He was mm. trying to explain to me what a capitalist is. And he said, it's anybody who owns more than one car. Oh, oh really? Yeah. So this was a long time ago. I just. I and that, that, and that car was a Lada. <laughs> it was a Yugo. It was a Yugo. It was Yugoslavia. That's yeah. right. Oh, my so God. So I, a I, couple of things. I think car prices are going to go up. I don't think if there is a general strike, I don't think you're going to see the parts suppliers go on strike. The mm. parts suppliers are trying to meet a backlog that's still out there, and I don't think there's going to be a sympathy. The UAW thing. guy, you saw him, Sean Faney. I haven't met him. He's welcome on the show. Sean, you're out there. Please come on. I love Detroit. Want to help out. Um, you, but he's a tough dude. He is a tough what dude. What would advice would you give yeah, him? Because that he, kind of stuff just inflames yeah. the CEOs, I, right? I was a uh, union steward for a long time. I worked in a factory. My dad was a blue-collar guy. Rule number one in negotiating is you never want to embarrass somebody you're trying to negotiate with. I don't understand the theatrics. I respect the union. I think there's a role for unions in this economy. Yep. They need to look out for workers. I'm a huge supporter of people making more money. Mm -hmm. I think real wages need to go up. But when you do crap like that and you start throwing contracts, like what's the goodness out of that? You're just trying to embarrass the other side. I think he's trying to get the rank and file excited yeah. and getting ready to prime himself for a strike. So I think, I, think they're, I think they're a long way apart. And it's going to be a challenge to get into. They have $825 million in a strike fund. And he's basically saying, we're going to pay your bills. Even if we go on strike, you're going to be okay. We're going to see it. Uh, Robert, love to have you on. What do you think of the show? I love this show. I mean, you know. I watch it almost every night. I love the wrap-up. I love the guests. I love being on it. Guess the, be the, the guests are the best <laughs> part. I mean, it's the best <laughs> part. We're and we're trying to give the Shark Tank, you know, give you a little, little lead-in. Robert Hershey. Shark Tank. Thank you very much. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. All right. Brian. On deck. Like some Texans like to say, if you're all hat, no cattle, it means there's, you know, not a lot of there there. So what if the new CHIPS Act is all money, no people? Christina Partsonevelis in North Carolina looking for answers. Exactly. Federal funds are flowing, but the workers are missing. I'm Christina Partsonevelis at Wolf Speed in North Carolina. Coming up after the break, we look at the massive talent gap within the semiconductor space. That's next.
All right, welcome back. Yesterday, we spoke to you, with you, about the CHIPS Act one year later. And now companies are waiting on federal funding for semiconductor manufacturing in America. But even when the money does come, will there be enough workers to use it? Christina, joining us now with more from Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, when we're talking about the money that does come, that's supposed to be $231 billion promised in investments to the chip space. But as companies start to build out and expand, they're realizing how difficult it is to find qualified talent that can work in clean rooms and R&D labs like this one, especially in an already squeezed labor market. Listen in. We do see that skilled labor, right, in the constructions, as well as skilled labor for our fabs is something we got to work on. Well, companies are working on it right now, but they're fighting for the same talent. In states like Texas, North Carolina, where I am right now, and New York, we're seeing a large influx in new job postings within the chip space. If anything, we're expecting an added 115,000 jobs by 2030, but over half of those are expected to be unfulfilled because of a lack of qualified training. A prime example is Taiwan Semiconductor. They just recently said that they're going to slow production at one of their, or postpone production, I should say, at their Arizona plant until 2025 due to a lack of U.S. skilled workers. They're actually flying in Taiwanese workers to help train their own U.S. staff. So I caught up with the president of TSMC Arizona to ask him if maybe it was about cheaper labor. Listen it actually is more expensive to bring the worker from Taiwan, pay them a fair U.S. salary while they're in the U.S., and pay for all their relocation and housing and support. Um, it actually makes them more expensive. And that's why the CHIPS Act is set to churn workers here on American soil. So far, there's about 50 community colleges that are offering some type of semiconductor program, and there's going to be $13 billion in workforce training that's going to go to the space, which is a first step in closing that gap. And I think the CHIPS Act is a really good step forward. And what I really like about it, it's just not money just being given to companies. It's, it's about workforce development. It's not only about workforce development, it's also companies that are waiting for those federal dollars, and then it's about finding that qualified talent. We're just not there yet, or, Ryan. Or, or training them, and you mentioned that. How long would it take? Like, if I, I know nothing about semiconductors, I want to become somebody who could work at that plant you're at. How long are the programs? It depends on which program you're going to go through. The shortest program I've seen is at Maricopa Community College. They have a 10-day program, and then you can start working in a lab in Intel. But in most other states, it's usually anywhere from a few months to a few years. And to your point about you don't even know what a semiconductor works, looks like, this is a, a wafer right now, and these little black pieces on there, those are semiconductors. I've contaminated it, so this obviously is for the garbage. But <laughs> it's so small and so difficult to work on that you need qualified talent. It's no Nilla wafer. I know that, but now it is in the garbage. Christina oh. Partsenevelis, important story. Great stuff. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, why $100 oil and 5 or even $6 a gallon gas could be back and sooner than you think. All right, welcome back. Time for the last call watch list. And there's one big thing that we are watching right now, and that is oil. U.S. crude cruising back to above 84 bucks a barrel, highest level since last November. It is now up 14% in just over a month. 
Brent crude with a trade overseas, highest level since earlier this year. It's not hard to figure out why. Remember OPEC? Saudi Arabia and Russia, they've been cutting production all at the same time that U.S. gasoline demand is on the way up. And it's not just demand that's up. Prices rising as well, up about 30 cents per gallon nationally from just a month ago. Now, the national average price is 383. I know <laughs> many of you out west are laughing at those numbers. Californians paying over five bucks a gallon in many stations, highest in the country, followed by the usual offenders, Washington State, Hawaii, Oregon, and Alaska. The question is, how much higher? Can oil prices go? Every time we get up here, they tend to fall back down. Joining us now with some insight is Veriton, energy market strategy partner, Michael Bradley. Michael, great to have you back on again. Um, you know, listen, every time we've been tested 83 lately, we've been failing. Do you think we will move higher this time? Yeah, Brian, I think we will move higher. Yeah, we've moved a lot already. But uh, if you look at what's going on right now, it's really about fundamentals, right? I mean, the market over the last couple months was really worried about demand. Really, over the you know year to date, was worried about demand, but it's a supply issue now. Like you referenced earlier, you've taken about a million and a half uh, barrels off the market with the June cuts, and you had two million barrels you know taken off the market in uh, in November of last year. So you've got over two and a half to three million barrels of supply off the market. We're coming to a seasonally strong period at this point in time. Inventories worldwide are below average. You know, basically WTI time spreads and Brent time spreads are in backwardation. So it's telling you that the market is physically tight. So the market, it really has gone from demand worries to supply worries as it well should. I'm going to do you think there has been an impact in the price of oil by the selling of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? And I, I know there has been an impact, but I, I want to kind of gauge, Mike, what you think the actual impact may have been because that's over. We could we could keep selling, I guess, but the idea is to re replenish it, not sell more. How much do you think that really played a role in price action? Yeah, Brian. I mean, you know, you mentioned it uh, just just a second ago. We've taken about 200 million uh, barrels out of the SPR since June of last year, and we're now down towards right roughly 350 million barrels, which is the lowest since 1983. So I would say that that is multiple dollars of crude oil price. And so what we have now with OPEC basically with a million and a half, two million barrels up to market and also having the market being two to two and a half million undersupplied, you essentially have the reverse of the SPR happening right now. And the difference this time around is you've gotten it so low on the SPR that you really can drain the inventories or you could damage them. So you're not going to have that lever to pull going forward from a political standpoint. So that's differentiated this time. You know, why, why do all the, not you guys at Veriton and some of the other guys in Houston, why, why people around the world getting oil demand estimates either spectacularly wrong or keep revising them up? You know some of the organizations I'm talking about. What are they missing here? It's like, well, we're going to stop using oil next year. And then they raise the, they raise the amount of demand they expect. Yeah, Brian, I just think we've been in a differentiated world with inflation and, you know, OPEC cutting uh, production and stuff of that nature and demand being all over the place. But if you look at it right now, you just said it earlier, you know, gasoline demand in the U.S. looks pretty good. Jet fuel is off the charts if you've been flying. Yeah. You know, diesel is, is kind of weak right now. But, you know, in general, demand looks pretty good. And now everyone's having to deal with these supply cuts. And it's gigantic. We have a lot of that. Yeah. And we, we haven't even talked about Gulf of Mexico storm. We haven't had any hurricanes. That Don't could basically it. create a yeah. Don't. That could create a situation, Brian, where we we have low yeah. product inventories. Yeah. Don't, I, I just don't want to jinx it. Last year was the calmest hurricane season in decades in the Gulf of Mexico. Let's keep it calm. Mike Bradley, Veriton, thank you very much.
You bet, Brian. All right, coming up, what happens when a self-driving taxi goes, well, bonkers in the streets of San Francisco? Our car sat parked on a busy street for 20 minutes, causing a traffic jam for blocks. Yeah, you don't want to be in that car. But our reporter was, and you'll hear the report next. Welcome back. A major vote in California this week could expand the presence of driverless cars in San Francisco, but got some new details tonight on the dangers they might pose. NBC Bay Area senior investigative reporter Bigad Shaban explains. No hands on the wheel, no hands at all. Okay, I just requested our ride and it's three minutes away. More than 2,000 self-driving cars are on the road in California. Most have a test driver inside who can take over when needed, but hundreds of cars have no one in the front seat as they make deliveries and shuttle passengers. We try to ride with Cruise. Owned by GM, Cruise is one of the largest driverless car companies in America, along with its competitor, Google's Waymo. Both are now asking California regulators for permission to expand their robo-taxi services inside the state's largest testing ground, San Francisco, so passengers can request rides 24 hours a day, right from their phones. Once you enter your destination, the car does the rest. You can't tell it what routes to take or streets to avoid. So if you're used to being a backseat driver, you might want to find a car with a front seat driver. Autonomous vehicles can detect closed streets, drive around double parked cars, and even pull over for emergency vehicles. But getting chauffeured by a robot isn't always a smooth ride. State transportation records obtained by NBC News show self-driving cars have been involved in 280 crashes across California over the past five years, resulting in at least 64 injuries and a dead dog. That includes collisions with other vehicles, bicyclists, and city buses. A self-driving car and I mean no driver. Some accidents were caused by other people on the road, according to crash reports. How many is unclear from the data. But the cars have been confused by emergency scenes, sometimes plowing into caution tape or blocking fire trucks. Waymo didn't comment, but Cruz tells us automation has safety benefits. Our cars don't drive drunk, they don't get distracted. Prashanti Raman is one of the leaders at Cruz. Our vehicles are designed to, when they approach a situation that they aren't aren't sure about. They're designed to come to a safe stop. But you would acknowledge that even coming to a full stop can create safety issues too. So traffic blockages are not something that we want to have happen. Just hours after that interview, it did happen to us. Our first ride with Cruz went as planned, but we then invited a longtime driving instructor, Eugenia Borges, to join us on a second ride. About one minute in, our car was at a green light but wouldn't budge. It's a very safe situation for the car to turn and it's just staying here, I'm not sure why. The car eventually inched forward, but kept stopping. We're kind of now riding in between two lanes. Then all of a sudden, it hit the gas. Oh. Oh. Okay, I don't know what it's doing now. Our car drove straight towards the median and just stopped, picking up almost two full lanes. This is not good. <laughs> People okay. are honking at us. Soon came the looks from other drivers. How does this compare to the worst driving student you've ever had? Oh, this is much worse. 
Cruz declined to sit down with us again, but in a statement said, the car encountered an unexpected construction zone that would have required several lane changes. The better course was for the autonomous vehicle to come to a safe stop rather than proceed. While other drivers cruised right past that closed lane, our car sat parked on a busy street for 20 minutes, causing a traffic jam for blocks. What's your reaction to it being a driverless car stuck here? I'm not surprised. Self-driving cars are already being tested in at least 25 states, but with no federal regulations, America doesn't have a national roadmap for safety guidelines. Hey there, guys, just wanted to check in. Back inside our car, Cruise Customer Service contacted us to say they detected a problem. Their solution? They sent us a driver to get behind the wheel. That reporter, Big Ed Chaban, joins us now. Awesome piece. I'm watching it with a, I'm screaming at the TV. I got two comments quickly and a question, Big Ed. First off, I didn't see I didn't see any construction zone, but maybe there was one there. Number two, I was surprised you didn't like leap over the seat to grab the wheel once that car started moving because there was traffic coming at you. What happens when the car breaks down? How long did it take for the human to arrive? I guess to take some of those questions separately. So the first thing is. The construction zone that they alluded to, Brian, was actually just the right lane was closed. And so the car got confused, and so it felt the need to pull over. But as you saw, there were countless human drivers that clearly could interpret the fact, I can use the other two open lanes and keep going. As for how long we sat there, it was about 20 minutes. Certainly, it's not the way that Cruz wanted our ride to end. And they say, frankly, for the vast majority of rides, they don't need a human to, frankly, come to the rescue. And I can tell you from having been in two of these now, it is pretty remarkable to see all the things that these cars can navigate through the everyday hustle and bustle. But the reality is, Brian, it's remarkable until it isn't. And there are clearly some shortcomings when it comes to the technology of these vehicles, particularly when it comes to trying to communicate with people. It's something that we take for granted all the time. Recognizing a smile of a pedestrian who's trying to cross in front of you, a yeah. police officer who's waving you down to, to go into a different lane. These are things that, frankly, these cars have severe difficulty yeah. doing and, frankly, can't see, in some cases. Begat in San Francisco, and I'm sure most of our audience, I've driven in, I drove in San Francisco last year, and it's an awesome city in many ways, got its issues, but steep hills. I mean, how, how do you get nervous? I'd be terrified in the back of one of these cars. I'm just not, I don't think I'm psychologically there yet. You know, interestingly, there are some stipulations and restrictions for a lot of these vehicles, and steep hills at this point is actually one of them. So, you know, as the technology progresses, I think you'll see more and more of these restrictions be lifted. But there are some cases where they're frankly programmed not to travel at all in the city. We're not going to be going down Lombard Street in a... <laughs> <laughs> Probably not anytime soon. Not yet. I got a little nervous for you when it, I stopped at the hedge, but I was worried he was going to go into oncoming traffic. I'm going to push that piece out. Great piece. We're, we're getting it. We're, we're getting there. But very quickly, by the way, when's this vote? Thursday? So regulators are actually going to take on this issue Thursday. The staff there at the California Public Utilities Commission is actually already recommending that the plan go through. It's an expansion, basically allowing two of the major companies, Waymo and Cruise, to essentially imitate the ride hailing program that, say, Uber and Lyft have, being able to charge passengers 24 hours a day, seven days a week in all parts of San Francisco with no cap, Brian, on just how many of these driverless vehicles they can put on the road. And possibly stranding in, in the left-hand lane on like Chestnut Street <laughs> in the Marina District or wherever you were. Big Ed Shaban, really appreciate it. Great piece. 
Thank you. Have a good night. Brian, thank you so much. Good being with you. Anytime. All right. Before we go, folks, we have got a big show for you tomorrow. We're going to take last call on the road. Not that far. We're going across the bridge into lower Manhattan. We will be at the beautiful Tin Building. Great lineup. We've got Jean-Georges, hotelier Ian Schrager, Howard Hughes Corp. CEO David O'Reilly. Maybe some surprises. We are live on the road at the Tin Building. Hey, come join us. That is last call for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank, maybe with this Herjavec guy. It's next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.